Wait for it. And we are live. Hello, everyone. Josh and Ari in person. And in nine years of podcasting and blogging, first time actually doing a live stream in the same room. So it's weird to actually, like, we're not at the same height. <laughs> because of just being on monitor. So I was going to say, Zoom is a great equalizer in that sense. <laughs> yeah, so it's very, very surreal. It's like, yes. oh, you are human. Um, you're not two-dimensional. And so here we are to discuss Star Trek Lower Decks, season two finale, first, first contact. Nari, what did you think of this episode? Uh, I really loved it. It was top to bottom, both hilarious and it was it was interesting. It was action packed. Um, I really have enjoyed the balance that Lower Decks has always struck between being sort of a, a, just just a really funny show mm -hmm. and also well and also being a really interesting sci-fi show. And this one just highlighted how well they'd struck that balance. It was it was gripping at the same time as it was hilarious. Absolutely, and they they have fun. Oh yes, and it's. It's wonderful to see a Star Trek show written by people who love Star Trek. And that shows. And we get to see several long running jokes pay off. We get to see callbacks to things from season one. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot there. Plus you also get the, well, Star Trek is really good at found family. And in this case, family. Yes. And we've seen the parent relationship before, such mm -hmm. as uh, uh, Spock and his dad, uh, Savick. And that played out very well in different, you know, whether it was Journey to Babel or Star Trek Three or Star Trek Four with how they interacted. Mm -hmm. This with the mommy daughter reaction, uh, I've been enjoying it. Uh, seeing just sort of like, okay, that's nice. There's that's fun stuff. Yes. So, but let's talk about what happens with uh, Captain Freeman's going to get offered a promotion. Mm -hmm. uh, Mariner does not react well to that. So I don't know if that's no. any, <laughs> if there's abandonment issues, like what's going on here. Uh, but she does not react well to yes. to mom going to a bigger and better ship. Potentially. So she inadvertently eavesdrops and things go downhill from there. Now, apparently they go to the captain's yacht, something that we first saw in uh, Star Trek Insurrection mm -hmm. uh, with the Enterprise E had a yacht. Yes. Yep. Oh, and I just want to just to, so we're skipping over the events uh, in the first sequence involving the explosion of the planetoid. <laughs> and, um, at this point, the crew is now attempting to deal with the crisis. Um, so we there's there's two things that we can discuss here that happen on the captain's yacht. Um, oh, sorry. No, keep okay. going. Keep going. Uh, the first one, and I just want to mention it briefly, is in a long-running series of things for Mariner is uh, you know failure to follow orders. <laughs> Um, disobeying an order from a superior officer, as you covered last time, a lawful order at least, uh, is an offense in the UCMJ. Um, it will get you demoted, if not punished for other things <laughs> in other ways. Um, so that, that's just a theme for Mariner at this point. 
Uh, I think the things that's been saving her as they discuss in the show is the fact that the captain is her mom. But in any event, the other thing that I thought was interesting is that in a series of things that Rutherford and Tendi are doing in order to celebrate, I guess, or appreciate the ship, because uh, Tendi believes that she will be departing it, um, they end up, I believe it's having ice cream on the captain's yacht. So I, I like boats a lot, and I do like ice cream a lot. So I see nothing wrong with that plan. Uh, now on the flip side, this is supposed to be forbidden to go on board the captain's yacht. And we find out why it could be forbidden. <laughs> yes. So as with any workplace, there are places that employees have basically the permission to go to and mm -hmm. places where maybe they don't. Like I don't hang out in the managing partner's office. Exactly. Maybe. If you happen to walk in there and start messing around with his shelves or something, he might consider that a trespass. <laughs> I, I value my job. That's a bad life choice. Yes. And there isn't a special law, as far as I'm aware, for employee trespass, but it's just the, tr the typical traditional definition of trespass, which is, at least under California law, is de uh, defined as entering or remaining on someone else's property without permission or right to do so. So in this case, an employer gives an employee a certain like a permission to be on their premises, but that that permission might be limited to specific places and specific times, right? So like if an employee comes back to a shop after it's closed up, nobody's there, and then enters, they might be trespassing because they don't have permission to be there at that time. So in this case, Josh, so are they trespassing? <laughs> solid, I would say yes, uh, unequivocally, because we get the military side of it. And here's why. On yeah. They hide when they're caught. Continue. Yeah, there's there's that because nothing says innocence like hiding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't. Uh, that doesn't mean that only the guilty fear of the police. No, no, state. no, exactly. And it, they could be embarrassed about something else, including but, the fact that they are hanging out alone together eating ice cream. I don't know. But... See nothing wrong with that. Uh, anyway, where I was going with this is, if you go into a galley on a warship or a military base. There's not just like the officer section for where they eat, but like the captain's table. You don't just go sit at the captain's table. Like that's something you get invited to. And frequently the captains will eat alone. And that's how they roll. On the flip side, sometimes people go like, hey, can I join you? Or the captain would invite the person over. Uh, but that's normal. And now there are, you know, tradition in the Navy. Not so much the Coast Guard, though. I've never heard of it. But uh, like a like an aircraft carrier could have a captain's gig, uh, which could be you know aircraft carriers a thousand feet long. Uh, they can have a little forty foot fiberglass boat that can shuttle the captain around places when they're in port. That's normal. So we don't call them yachts; we call them gigs. Calling it a Unfortunately, yacht can have a pretentious uh, quality to it, and that's not fair. Not everything's like an America's Cup boat race. It literally means a certain class of ship, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know for like nice sailing and fast. Mm -hmm. And generally, a yacht is a sailboat. You can't have power boats that fall into that category. But the traditional, it's you know you think. You think, you know, um, the America's Cup, you know, you think in terms of something elegant, mm -hmm. not, you know, ugly and tacky 
uh, which some of the large power yachts look like, in my opinion. It's like, why would you do that? Why? <laughs> On the flip side, there's one that's, you know, it's like a 65-foot yacht and submarine. That sounds nice. But again, I have a mild Captain Nemo complex. <laughs> it's under control. But but so they they go on board. So yeah, I do think they're trespassing. Yes, it seems like they probably don't have permission to be on the captain's yacht. Um, they don't have a work reason to be there. So um, yeah, they're probably trespassing. Are they going to get in trouble for it? No, because they managed to save the day, of course. But <laughs> so there's the tradition side of of why you don't go on board there. But I think the practical side was that's where. Uh, the captain and uh, her daughter would go to have mommy-daughter arguments. That is what it seems like. <laughs> yeah. Maybe even cast off for a bit so they can scream at each other. Yep, I can see that. that seems, uh, you don't want to hear the captain and, you know, the kid screaming at each other. That's bad for morale on all kinds of levels. So As we have seen yeah. <laughs> in this show. And like this episode, like yes. it, it can really freak out people uh, that, you know, mariners were just so discontent with the senior staff mm -hmm. who felt like they were being abandoned. Yes. And and Mariner did that intentionally, which once again, it falls into that unbecoming uh, catch-all that, that the military has. Mm -hmm. But why is it all this happening? Well, a little planetoid exploded because of the solar flare. Mm -hmm. And the USS Archimedes captained by Sonia Gomez, who we saw in two Next Gen episodes where she spilled coffee on Captain Picard. I Ooh. did not remember that. So oh, my God. <laughs> same actress voiced the character. Oh, my God. That is so cool. <laughs> so when, when her ensign trips in front of her. I get say, it now. Oh, my God. I get it now. <laughs> it's okay. I've done worse. It's like, yeah, you didn't, like, douse Jean-Luc Picard and hot coffee. So, yeah, but again, she seems really cool in a nice command style, uh, which is what you want in uh, a leader. Mm -hmm. Having that, it's more than just servant leader, but they, they talk the talk and walk the walk. Mm -hmm. You know, when they're trying to fix the ship, like she's underneath a shuttlecraft, you know, and she's totally in like shop girl look. And just like, rock I on think her. there's some literal elbow grease there. <laughs> literally, yeah. I mean, she's got oil on her face. Yeah. She's she's doing her thing to save her crew. Like, it's just rock on. And again, nice command style. Yes. So that raises a big issue with the duty to rescue. And we have two elements here rescuing the Ar Ar Archimedes, which again, I think of, I need to verify this, but I think of the mechanical bird from. Um, uh, Clash of the Titans. I might be wrong on that. Uh, and the Lapirians, who they were really close to honoring Live Long and Prosper. I don't know if that was their intent or not, uh, but normally that'd be LLAP, Live Long and Prosper, and this is LAAP. I see. So I'm not sure what they're trying to do with the lap system, other than if they were just having some fun with. Mm -hmm. Let's make up a word. I don't maybe somebody watching this can let us know if that was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> Please. So Nari, what's the duty to rescue? And let's apply the test to both 
situations that we have? Yeah. So in general, um, and uh, you know, this may be different. Also, I think uh, you've talked a number of times about like duty to aid other vessels. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, speaking more in generalities, there is no general duty at common law. So that means that unless there's a statute that says otherwise um, to rescue someone from an imminent harm, um, unless you have a special relationship with that person. Uh, so while it is bad and you would be a jerk if you see someone, maybe a child drowning um, and don't jump in the water and rescue them as a hopefully, you know, full-bodied adult and you don't help, you would be a jerk. It would be really bad. <laughs> you would probably be rightly called out as being heartless and horrible. Uh, but you would not have legal liability for having failed to help someone who is drowning. Um, this is like, I think there's a sometimes age-old hypothetical of like the rich man walking by and doesn't want to ruin his $100 shoes and so doesn't jump in to save the drown. So in any event, obviously bad, not necessarily a legal problem unless you have the special relationship. Um, so there are sometimes Good Samaritan laws, although the Good Samaritan laws are normally instead geared towards- Defending. Yes, protecting someone who in with good intent attempts to help someone and ends up causing harm um, or fails in their attempt to rescue someone. It's just to shield them from liability so we're not disincentivizing people from being Good Samaritans. We want the people to feel motivated to go save the drowning child. Like this is, oh look, somebody's hurt on the train tracks, I will go render aid. We want to reward that. Uh, yes, and if you, you pick them up from the train tracks and then you know they injures their arm as you're picking them up, um, you don't want to then have that person be able to sue you for having attempted to save them. Yeah, exactly. So it also, I just want to flag one more nuance on that, which it's it's also comes into play. Good Samaritan laws are often passed also protect specifically doctors. Yeah. So with the, you know, is there a doctor in the house? And then the person attempts to help, does something wrong. You don't want that doctor when someone puts up their hands, is there a doctor in the house? You don't want them to be thinking, could I get sued for malpractice? <laughs> I, I had an experience on that uh, back in 2004, flying back to Massachusetts for a scout event. Someone went to the back of the galley with her adult mother. Uh, so again, it's woman in her 60s, woman in her 30s type situation woman in her 30s collapsed and looked like was having a seizure. And the mother started yelling code red, which scared the hell out of everyone on the airplane, especially in 2004 because- Oh, of, goodness gracious. Because of you know the unpleasantness that happened. And I was on the aisle, sitting at the window seat, uh, was a woman who was a nurse. And she was really going like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this because of the paperwork involved oh, oh crap and so eventually it's like it took her like five seconds but she jumped over her husband and uh she wore combat boots i know because Ooh. <laughs> she landed on me and used me as a springboard um i will remember that for a long time and then went back and helped the the lady in distress and everyone was okay mm -hmm. uh everyone on the plane did groan when we turned uh but we weren't turning to land someplace because we did make it to Boston. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it was one of those moments of like, yeah. But again, she was afraid of all the paperwork. She could have just sat there and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna set this one out. Mm -hmm. But because she was a good human being, 
she pivoted off me and then yes. went to go save people. This is why Good Samaritan laws are generally a good idea. Yeah, exactly. I did not file charges. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, so when we look at uh, the situation of the Federation did not cause a solar flare. They did not cause the planetoid to explode. Mm -hmm. The exploding planetoid knocked out the Archimedes. And now the Archimedes is a large projectile with a warp core full of antimatter tumbling towards. This is at least a city ending event, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, it wouldn't. Yeah, it would definitely at least a city killer. <laughs> so it's it's definitely going to kill a few million people. I don't know if it's going to wipe out the whole planet, but it's still not just like an oopsie daisy. <laughs> Anything with a mushroom cloud is a bad day. Is and again trying to explain we're sorry. There's no homework card for that. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> so is there a duty to go rescue the Archimedes? or a duty to re rescue the planet. So let's take the Archimedes first. What do you think? So in this instance, probably based off of two things. The first is something that we've talked about before that I will let you talk in more detail about because if our viewers did not gather from your discussion of yachts, uh, you know a lot more about uh, ships and maritime law than I do. Yeah, I like that. So yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, the other one is that there is a special relationship between uh, or for people whose job is to rescue people. So in this instance, you definitely have an argument that the crew of the Cerritos, who is Starfleet, um, has an obligation to rescue another vessel. Yeah, especially one of their own. Yes. And even if they, uh, you know, like this goes back to different track episodes. Uh, there was a, one of the episodes of Discovery Season 2 with Pike. You know, when they decide to go rescue, um, uh, why am I blanking on her name? Uh, uh, Tilly. Mm -hmm. You know, and Pike gives the speech of, you know, you know, I'll die for you, you die for me, and we're going to go save one of our own. And like, this is a ship full of a thousand people. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad for morale if we just let them tumble to their deaths. Yeah, there are there are good policy reasons why you would risk larger numbers of people, even in a military organization, for smaller numbers of people, and one of them is morale. Yeah, and like we we have a long history of doing that. Uh, our service people get very upset when we leave people to die. Uh, you know, like and that stem even goes as far as recovering bodies, mm -hmm. and like we're still doing that for people we lost in World War Two. So there's there's a strong tradition. It might not be a I think that may be an ongoing issue with North Korea as well. Probably. Uh, we lost lots of people. And I don't I don't know if we got all the remains home from Vietnam. Yeah. Um, so like we, we actually have divisions of the military that just deal with that. That's their job. So putting the spin on this for you know our, our starships that we have here. It probably isn't a written order because if you create an affirmative duty to go rescue other ships, that could get problematic. But also think of the Coast Guard's unofficial motto of uh, you, you have to go out. You don't have to come back. And that tracks here as well. Uh, like we're not going to just leave them to die. Mm -hmm. it, we don't want to get left to die. So we're going to, we're in a position to help, which again is one of the big themes from Star Trek. 
uh, you think back to City on the Edge of Forever with Kirk talking with Edith Keeler, and you know, it, it's you, they how do they describe it? One of the most important phrases in, in languages is either how can I help or let me help. And Star Trek does that. And this mm -hmm. is a situation of like, yeah, we're gonna go help. And I want to note it's not a suicide mission. They have a theory for how they're gonna rescue the ship. It's just a very dangerous mission, and <laughs> there's a big difference. Yeah, so they could literally just sit it out and be like, yeah, we're gonna watch a thousands of people die. And it's on a planet that we want to go make friends with. So mm -hmm. yeah, somebody who just figured out warp technology. I also just want to use this example of the Archimedes <laughs> crashing into the planet. Uh, it, it's also a great illustration for any law professors out there who want to talk about superseding causes. <laughs> so the Archimedes crashing into the planet seems like they're the proximate cause of whatever destruction happens. There is, however, a potential superseding cause that was not predicted. It was not predictable, which is this seemingly random solar flare, uh, which then interacted with this planetoid in a way that nobody seems to have expected. Uh, so that would be a great, great little hypo if anybody wants to, to use that. In case we start doing exams for folks. So. <laughs> Let's pivot to the planet. We want to go make friends with these guys. Mm -hmm. We don't want to blow up a city on accident. And they seem very friendly. They, they seem like a rip-roaring good time. Yes. And yeah, that's high risk right there. So you factor that in. If we, if we hadn't been here, none of this would be happening. That is, that, that, that's what I meant by like, mm -hmm. the, like seems like the proximate cause. Or there's certainly a but- for cause, that is true. Even though they, they are an innocent actor in it. Mm -hmm. It's like, I wasn't expected to be turned into a projectile. Yes, yeah, so this would be like, yeah, being in a car and then there's an earthquake and then your car gets shoved into another car. Technically a but-for cause, but <laughs> it was not, you were not the proximate cause of the accident. Yeah, if I hadn't gone off the cliff, I would not have hit the blimp. Like, yeah. you know, like that sort of extreme situation, like, that's really not foreseeable. Like, <laughs> well, what? not intended and not foreseen. Not foreseen. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this is it's a spin on Paul's graph. Mm -hmm. You know, because there's liability cannot exist in the air, and in this case, space. Yes. But that said, uh, the Cerritos uh, arguably would be under an obligation to go. We can't let a planet get screwed like that. Especially because Starfleet does seemingly, it does seem to be part of their job description. Query whether it's actually, like you said, written in their job description. It does seem to be part of their job description that they attempt to help and rescue others, including in this case, a prospective member of the Federation. Like there's interesting questions in older episodes um, about, uh, in other series, about whether you can intervene to help a pre-warp civilization that's facing a planet ending asteroid or things like that. Um, but in this case, it's, it's not pre-warp, they're making first contact. And there's a at least city killing event, um, possibly planet ending, about to happen. <laughs> or continent. And it makes it worse that they are a but for cause of that planet killing event, right? But um, even if they weren't the cause of it, arguably it may be their job to rescue planets from imminent destruction. Yeah, and the other half of this that I, I think is Habit inhabited planets, sorry. <laughs> so this is dark on, on where it's going. But again, we were alluding to 9-11 earlier, where planes were weaponized and flown into buildings. Flight 93 was in the air. Orders were issued to shoot it down. You 
could have had a similar situation of we can't stop it, we can't save them. Do we shoot down the Archimedes in order to make sure it doesn't kill a few million people? And I'm very grateful they came up with a plan that was not that. Yeah. I, uh, I think because it's a funny show, they also don't seem to have debated that. But if if this were a different type of Star Trek show, that would have been discussed openly. Yeah. It's like, do we have to blow it up? Because mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people on a ship, but there were a lot more people just in that city it appeared to be crashing into. And if it was, in fact, a planet killing event, I'm assuming millions and millions of people on the planet. That also goes to the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, which would, again, suck. Because mm -hmm. like we don't want to shoot down one of our own. Yeah. And, and again, thinking back to the interviews with you know the pilot, you know, like she didn't want to do that. So luckily that doesn't happen. And it has Yes, because this is a happy show. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not the nihilistic Star Trek where, where everything bad happens. But let's now, Star Trek uh, helped save the whales. Well, now they, they, Star Trek does have a unique relationship with cetaceans. <laughs> and these beluga whales need either a, a good visit from HR or we have to sue the whales. Ah. And so let's talk about those beluga whales and uh, what, what part of the ship is this again? I wasn't completely clear because I have never seen a section of the ship filled with liquid before. Yeah, and <laughs> is it supposed to be for navigation or stellar cartography? Like, it seems to just be their living environment. <laughs> so they either have some whales that they just took with them, but they're Starfleet officers. Yes, they're in they're in uniform, right? Yeah. And they're belugas, which yeah. if you've ever gotten to see belugas, they are pretty cool. I mean, like they do have kind of the front facing face mm -hmm. and they can squirt water and it's just I mean, they're wonderful beautiful intelligent animals and uh it's kind of not a surprise to see that they're you know in space and they got a job but they're a tad pervy and <laughs> sweating it lightly I, mean, I think they would be grabbing rutherford if they had hands <laughs> and as soon as they you know, like Rutherford's apparently visited them with them before. Apparently, he's gone swimming before. Okay, at least they, they, yeah, they are definitely aware of it. <laughs> you know, they they make some comment about like his broad shoulders and mm -hmm. like you know want to go for a swim. He looks sweaty. <laughs> Should jump in the water. <laughs> and, like one of the whales is named Matt, and, and it's just I mean it's brilliant. It's it's hysterical, but um. But let's talk about sexual harassment. Yeah, there are, there are. If this were a real life work environment, this is definitely a can of worms. It's a couple, it's like a can of worms within a can of worms, actually. So we'll start with the outer can of worms, which is uh, this, this is workplace sexual harassment. So um, now I just want to posit that, you know, Rutherford does seem to be fine with this. It is possible that this is not an unwanted sexual advance. <laughs> they seem to have a good relationship with each other. So it, it is possible. But, uh, you know, given that he seems to be consistently turning it down, I'm, I'm going to go forward that it may be an unwanted sexual advance. He, he might say something to the effect of, like, not now, guys, or something. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, you want to go swim with the girls in season one and there, and it's like, God bless them that, you know, that didn't work out. But apparently they, the whales love hanging out with them. So, but the way that they interact with them is... This is a problem. 
So <laughs> they, they, the, so we have him, you look sweaty. You also have like, after like some mission, it's great to go skinny dipping. Like, it's just like, yeah, If you transpose this to human environment on earth in a workplace, this would be, HR would be like tripping over themselves to try to get this person to shut up. So <laughs> this is the sort of behavior is why governors resign. So, <laughs> yes. so, but so I just, so just, just to go through a couple of the nuts, nuts and bolts really quick, because this is the legal geeks. We're going to talk mm. about the law. Um, uh, so under uh, anti-discrimination statutes, including title seven, um, equal uh, pay act, things like that. Um, what you have is is essentially that there has to be um, discrimination against a person on the basis of a protected status and status includes, or class, sorry, class includes section, sex, sexuality um, after, I think it was Bostock was the case that, that held that for okay. Title VII. Um, and, you know, also includes race, religion, et cetera. There's like a whole slew of things that it can include. Uh, one of the things under Title VII that counts as, as her, um, uh, essentially sex discrimination is a hostile work environment created on the basis of sex. Um, and in this case, I would posit that so, and this is just kind of an ordinary garden variety sexual harassment, that these belugas are particularly attracted to Rutherford, it seems. Um, and, and Josh and I spent some time trying to figure out <laughs> whether or not it was specifically Rutherford or it was just like all the males or that he was of color but it seems like they had between the four main characters quite a lot of people to pick from and they picked Rutherford. <laughs> so Tendi, Mariner, and Boimler. Right. Are, so it's not are, just that they're going after the boys, but are all ignored. Yes. Like they are, it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's like, hello. And uh, but an unwanted sexual advance like this, um, especially it's happening repeatedly just in this scene, is going to count as a hostile work environment. So let's talk about the jury instructions from California on how to how to prove that. So we get the first element that you have to you know, set the stage that uh, that the behavior by the Belugas created a work environment that was hostile, intimidating, offensive, uh, oppressive, or abusive, and that the that Matt wasn't a or excuse me that Rutherford was an employee of a person or uh, providing services under a contract or an unpaid intern or a volunteer with. So like worked for. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely, I think the, the Belugas were lieutenants or lieutenants. Yeah they, had, yeah, they had more than one pip. So you do have a you know, superior officer issue as well. And that is a really good point. And then Rutherford is subjected to harassing conduct. Uh, I just want to note that it doesn't have to be an employment superior in order for this to be harassment to continue. Yeah, exactly. Because that is it, not a requirement. No, we don't it want people, worse, but it's not a requirement. We don't want people to think that you can get a free pass of like, look, I just work with him. Or not to make a sexual injury, I work under him. Sorry. But, but like you can totally imagine, right? Like, you know, an, an uh, inferior employee with a boss and they keep making advances to the boss. Hey, so you look really nice in that uh, shirt there, <laughs> or you look really great in that blouse or skirt, what what have you. If they keep doing that, it can create a hostile work environment. It doesn't matter that they don't have power over that person. Yeah, it's one thing to go like, dude, great hat. It's something else to go wrong. Mm -hmm. Just no, just, just no. And, and the whales do cross that line a couple times. So is that uh, harassing conduct severe or pervasive? 
So given that, I mean, the, the, the general attitude that they approach this scene with is that this seems to be normal for the belugas. Uh, I'm going to guess it's probably not the first time they've done this. So it is a defense that it's just an isolated incident. For example, if this happens once, but I'm going to guess this is not the first time. No, I think they've taken them out for drinks a couple of yeah. times. It's, uh, yeah, there's a lot there there. Uh, and it's weird. I still want to hang out with them. But... Like uh, I said, he seems to be fine with it, which is probably why they're still there. But <laughs> continue. Yeah, it's, yeah, but you know, let's talk about the fact that we have Starfleet officers who are whales. Yeah. And they're hanging out in a big tank. So uh, Star Trek Enterprise introduced the Zindi, who had an aquatic uh, species, and they were looked like big whales. And they had big spaceships. Star Trek Four again, we got that whale theme again. So it makes sense that we got some whales who are into astronomy. Not all the equipment down there is designed for flippers. And yeah. in fact, most of it seems to not be designed for flippers. <laughs> and they take great offense at that. So when you look at how welcoming Starfleet is with making reasonable accommodations for different species. Yes. How, how does that work? So when it comes to making reasonable accommodations, essentially uh, the first thing I want to point out here is that they don't, an employer in, under the ADA doesn't have to make everything in their workplace or every role in their workplace um, available for somebody with a disability to do. Um, what the ADA does protect is that if an employee who has a disability could do one of the jobs for the employer, um, and it is not an unreasonable accommodation for the employer to reassign them to that or to, I mean, reasonable accommodation is actually extremely broad. It's intentionally not specifically defined. So it's essentially as long as the in inconvenience or expense incurred by the employer in order to make something um, accessible to the disabled employee is not unreasonable, they should, they should do it. Uh, I have to say, Josh, that making some of these handles and other things accessible to a beluga because it doesn't have to be flipper accessible to be no yeah <laughs> I, I would say that starfleet's general counsel <laughs> or uh, or jag should should take a look at that because there could be an ada problem there there's another interesting ada wrinkle to what's going on here too which is the fact that these belugas seem to be isolated from the rest of the crew this is the first time we've seen them. I don't think they can swim out of their tank. Do they have EVA suits? Like, how do they, I mean, we might now see that. Do they get a, like a big, like hamster ball? I know, that's what I'm kind of hoping. Those down companion ways. I mean, again, who wouldn't like a beluga whale as a friend? Oh, and there was an episode of Geek Space Nine, I think that involved um, a officer who came from a, a super low gravity planet and yep. so needed to walk around. So you could have a similar thing where they would need to essentially have something that nullified gravity in a little localized space around them so they could swim through the ship. Well, again, when, when they rescue uh, Boimler, yes. you know, they get him up to the surface, they do make you know comments about like, keep him wet so he doesn't dry His out. Again, it's just so damn funny. But uh, what I wondered is whether or not they were isolated in this particular area, because maybe it is also a condition or a trait of their species that they cannot contain themselves from saying sexually licentious things. 
um, which uncontrolled would create a hostile work environment. If the employer is aware of it, then they would have a duty to do something about it. Um, we didn't quite finish going through because it's a lot, it's kind of a long list of jury instructions, but if you want to hold an employer liable for um, a, a, an employee of theirs sexually harassing others or discriminating against others, the employer has to have been aware of it or at least have processes in place that should have done that. Um, in any event, without getting into too much detail, it's possible that Starfleet was aware that these whales had this problem. And in order to create a re well, so there is actually a bit of an, a real life analogy here, which is uh, Tourette's. Yeah, but not Cuomo. No, 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 be, no. <laughs> Tourette's. Um, it, which is a recognized disability in which a person has an uncontrollable uh, reflex urge to make a sound or even often strings of words. Um, and so it could be that they have, as a like as a recognized disability, the inability to control themselves from saying the sexual things that pop into their head. And so in order to accommodate them, Starfleet has put them in their own office, essentially, so that they won't be creating a hostile work environment. Yeah, and I don't think that's the case because they leave Tendi, Mariner, and Boimler alone. It's they're they're just very into uh, Rutherford. And yeah, that does seem to be the case. <laughs> so, I mean, e, e for effort, but I don't think they're, uh, I, 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 it's just they, they like hanging out with Rutherford. Uh, I'm going to just pause it again that maybe the saving grace here is that it is not an unwanted thing. That maybe the reason they're not saying these things to Boimler and Mariner and Tendi is not because they don't also think those things about them, but because they know Rutherford and they know he's fine with it. Yeah, they like hanging out. So, yes. cool. Uh, yeah, it's just don't ask people to skinny dip. That, that's a great way to get pepper sprayed and sued and just. just In, unless you're really close friends with the person and you know for a fact that that is not an unwanted thing. It's, it's a, sounds like a disaster. Yeah, you should be very careful. <laughs> Again. And you will probably get in trouble with HR even if the person is fine with it. Definitely not at work. So, so, so many horrible, <laughs> horrible things. Like it's a can of worms inside a can of worms with another little worm hiding somewhere inside there. <laughs> that said, this long running uh, uh, gag worked. And it was a lot of fun. It's like, oh my, wow, okay. And, it, and it, going to the idea of. Is this the cetacean lab? Yeah. Yeah! Thank you. Because I remember they referenced that before. Hey, come, we're going to go for a swim in the cetacean. I get it now. <laughs> So yeah, so it exists. Yep. And they're they're wearing blue, so they're science division. And it's a lab, but not to study the cetaceans, it's a lab for the cetaceans. <laughs> That's so great. It's awesome. It's oh, a, I'm so glad I had this realization on live <laughs> streaming. You can see her lighting up in real time. God bless us, everyone. Uh, so if you recall sci-fi shows from the 90s, there was uh, Sequest DSV. And they had Darwin the Dolphin, who was like the captain's pet crew member navigator. But they had like aqueducts throughout the ship. So the dolphin could swim around and come up in different pools and interact. They don't have that on the Cerritos. And as far as we know, this is the only little bit of water. <laughs> And water. And when you throw in there the fact that there are aquatic Zindi, then that 
By this mm. time, they should be members of the Federation. Uh, the Zindi War is 100 years in the past, you know, even though it's a while before Enterprise J and in fighting the Sphere of Builders, but those are Enterprise references. They have the tech, or at least they know where they can get the tech. Mm -hmm. So the issue then is how many beluga whales are in Starfleet? And on that matter, how many aquatic species are in Starfleet? Because you can have more than one. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like with having a, an aquarium at home. Is it tropical? Is it brackish? What kind of fish do you have in there? As opposed to mammals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there are temperature requirements and all that fun stuff. So it, it, it's interesting to think about ship design that is now taking aquatic species into consideration. Uh, I just, I find that fascinating. Yeah. So let's get to the fact that I think that uh, the creators of this show love lawyers and I do want to give them all a hug because uh, season three might begin with a trial and I am comple completely down. Yes. Down for that. If you guys need any advice on how to put the trial together, we're here. We're available. If you want any guest voice actors, <laughs> we would also have, we would be very available. <laughs> Listen to us and you know how we sound. Any, any and all participation, we are available. <laughs> Absolutely. Positively. But more importantly, we're lawyers and we actually know how this stuff should work. So we have Starfleet Security board the ship. Mm -hmm. They say that they have proof from a reliable source. They don't that the captain uh, was part of a Klingon conspiracy, I think. Rogue Klingon conspiracy to blow up planet Packled mm -hmm. or Packled. Packled planet, planet. yeah. They're very good at naming things. Yeah, very smurfy. And down to a couple photos that they show. And then they walk her out in handcuffs in front of her crew mm -hmm. who thought that she was getting promoted and they wanted to do like the nice send off. So, lawyer mode kicks in. There's a lot to unpack with this. On uh, First off, let's talk about the Fourth Amendment on what is necessary for a lawful arrest and whether or not that happened here. Yes. So let's, the Federation should have some form of the Fourth Amendment. For those who don't know it by heart, we'll read it. Uh, the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution states the right that the people to be secure in their persons, house, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation. Affirmation. Affirmation, God, I always choke on that one. And uh, particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or thing to be seized. Amendment four, notice we put that, it's, it's in the top five for a reason. Uh, we were very freaked out about the star chamber and it raises the question of like, hey, what's probable cause? How, what's that standard? Well, you, it has, there has to be evidence. And this is, you know, the test for probable cause is an objective standard. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is, it exists where facts and circumstances within their, uh, an officer's knowledge and of which they had reasonably trustworthy information uh, are sufficient in themselves to warrant a man of reasonable caution 
in the belief that an offense has been or is being committed. Mm -hmm. You clerked for a federal judge. Did you have any probable cause cases that you might have? So because I clerked for a judge on the federal circuit, we did not deal with any criminal oh, cases. You know, <laughs> um, no, you would not have. Uh, my judge did certify designation in the District of Delaware, but we still dealt with civil cases there okay. as well. Um, so I did not directly deal with this type of matter, um, but it is something that's fundamental. We do study it as lawyers when we're in law school, when we're studying for the bar. Um, I do uh, hope at some point to work in the criminal field, at least in a um, uh, some point in the future, <laughs> um, perhaps in a pro bono capacity. Uh, but in any event, um, this is a really fundamental part of our system of laws and part of our, it's part of the Bill of Rights, um, which I believe is the first, I'm trying to remember, is it first 12? First 12, yep. Yeah. Yep, first 10. There, there we go. Thank you. First 10 mm. amendments to the Constitution. You know, after the election of 1800, we made some changes. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, but so, you know, we joke a little bit about like, you know, it's, it's, it's in the top five, but like, so the numbers don't necessarily actually mean something except that it is in the Bill of Rights. So we, it was essentially a condition to the states ratifying the Constitution mm -hmm. is that the Bill of Rights was accompanying it. They were enacted at basically the same time. Um, and so Probable cause is distinguished from reasonable suspicion um, in our case. Higher standards, like reasonable, yes. that's like a stop. Yes. So in order for a law enforcement officer to stop a person, so literally like a, a traffic stop, you're walking on the street and a, and a police officer puts up their hand and says, hey, hey, can I, uh, I'd like to just check your bag or I'd like to, well, not check your bag. I, um, you know, what are you doing here? Or who are you? Just any kind of stop. Um, there has to be reasonable suspicion. Um, which means that, and this is objective subjective, right? The officer has to subjectively actually hold a reasonable suspicion that you are or uh, involved uh, in, in the process of committing, have committed or about to commit some kind of offense. Um, in order to actually search, that includes, like I just retracted, searching your bag, um, in order to search your trunk, anything like that, um, uh, you have to have instead probable cause and in order to detain someone. So a stop, there's like, there's a, it, this is, has all been fleshed out in case law. You're not gonna find this in the fourth amendment itself, um, but, but there's essentially a temporal difference, right? Between an officer stopping someone, which is for a relatively short period of time and detaining someone. So that could include a stop that goes on for hours, right? Even though if they never take you into, you know, take, don't, they don't take you downtown to the actual jailhouse or police station, but they still keep you in place for a long period of time. Um, and it's definitely if they then put you in their car or take you down to the station and put you in a cell. Those are all definitely detentions. And for detention or searching, you have to have a probable cause instead of reasonable suspicion. Now, you will also note that in the Fourth Amendment, it talks about probable cause for warrants. But we have since held that that includes it's, you essentially a warrant is now essentially just a judge signing off on the police's belief that they have probable cause to do something. It just kind of creates an initial uh, guarantee, an imprimatur that they have the probable cause. It's not literally a guarantee because you do often find out later that they did not actually have the evidence they claim to have, et cetera. But it is an imprimatur that they have probable cause in order to go search something. In, certain, in, in many circumstances, though, a police officer is not going to be able to go call up the judge and say, hey, I think I have probable cause to search this person's trunk, for example. Um, so it is just, in general, a rule for de detentions and for searches. So we now uh, move up to appearing before a magistrate. And when, when that happens, 
like you can kind of prove up, start challenging, like, why am I here? Because that goes to the system that we have. And we know that's the Federation, you know, is is largely modeled off of. Yeah, and it's when you look at Roddenberry and the, you know, the, the view of the greatest generation, the promise of the 1960s, <laughs> problems can be conquered and you know, we can have a bright future together. Like we're all on board with that. With this, I start thinking in terms of like, how do we attack this? Now, first off, for the for the JAG officer, uh, prosecutors have a heightened ethical duties than than the civil lawyers because you're not supposed to charge people unless you like are really sure, like you have true probable cause. And the way that this is described when they arrest Captain Freeman, I would go on the warpath about that pretty quickly. It's like, where'd this come from? How reliable is your source? How do you, like, who is your source? How do you know they're reliable? Yeah, it's even security, you know, they're, they're sounding like dumb cops with like, sure, we know you were here, but that was probably part of the plan. I just want to- Probably part of the plan. I just want to point out also that that perfectly highlights the problem with conspiracy theories, which is if everything proves that you were part of this bad thing, it proves too much. It means that you're not actually saying anything. So if the fact that she was not there during this bombing somehow also proves that she was in on this conspiracy to do this bombing, eh, you've got a problem with your logic. Now, I would, I'm all on board for um, cross-examining, uh, like, and it would be a brutal cross-examination of the, of the security officer. It's like, yeah, okay, let's go. And there's still a lot of facts that we don't know, so we'll have to wait to see yeah. the premiere of season three to see what what evidence they actually are going to line up. But there are some things, Josh, that we can talk about that as defense lawyers, you would strategize about even not knowing those facts. That includes, like you were saying, attacking whether or not there was probable cause just for the initial charging and arrest. Well, that and the state has to turn over the evidence that they have. Yes. So because, again, that star chamber type scary situation. But it's like, okay, this is where my e-discovery knowledge comes in. You guys are putting up photos? All right, let's dig into the metadata. Who took those? When were they taken? What's the history of those images? Yeah, how did you get that? Yeah. Because <laughs> if it was dropped at our you know, mailbox by a mysterious cloaked individual, there's there's some red flags there. <laughs> that means who's your credible source? Yes. Yeah. Okay, you know, like this is sounding more like section 31 trying to screw someone. And being able to go like we thought the pack lids were a threat so we decided to blow up the planet and we'll and just pin it on someone who we find inconvenient maybe yeah, yeah who the only federation captain that went to the planet trying yeah. to do peace talks so she's the only one that we figured that we could pin this on i want to highlight one thing that you mentioned josh which is also discovery in criminal cases it's a little bit different yes. in the sense that there is a legal obligation to turn over evidence relating to um, both the both evidence that relates to guilt and exclu potentially exculpatory evidence. And this is actually a bit of an issue in our justice system that it is up to prosecutors to decide what evidence is potentially exculpatory when they hand it over. Um, and it is subject to a lot of abuse, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it's, heav it's, it's heavily litigated when people are lucky enough to have good lawyers, um, when defendants are lucky enough to have good lawyers. Um, but it's something that, you know, ultimately one of the big solutions is not just litigation, but as citizens, 
to try to hold prosecutors accountable when they're not living up to their ethical obligations. And this is fundamentally not just a legal obligation, but an ethical obligation. Um, there's also a problem of turning it over on the eve of trial, as opposed to when there's a reasonable amount of time for the defense lawyer to go through it and try to figure out if the, any of the evidence does support the uh, client's uh, or defendant's innocence. Um, and this is highlighting a very important premise of our legal system, which is that you are innocent until proven guilty. The fact that you have been charged, um, in fact, gives you additional rights. It doesn't take away rights simply because you uh, have been accused of something by the government. Um, and if I'm not skipping ahead, I wanted to talk about one thing in this episode that does kind of strike a little bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> and then I want to talk about the trial strategy and on what we do for trial prep. So go for it. Okay, so just really quickly, I wanted to mention briefly that this episode is a great highlight of a problem <laughs> that does kind of attack that fundamental premise of innocent until proven guilty, which is the perp walk. So Captain Freeman here is arrested in a very public way. Um, I don't know for sure that Starfleet security knew that there was going to be her whole crew around. They certainly knew that there was going to be some crew in the room when they arrested her. Um, but this is something that actually happens in our justice system. It certainly came in vogue since about the 80s, which is to essentially make the charging and the arrest part of the punishment itself um, by making it extremely public. Now, granted, in a world in which we all have cell phone cameras, it's going to be very difficult for the police not to arrest someone where there's a camera or someone with an inter internet connection around. But there has been a habit, especially since the, I think it was, we talked about this, the 80s, starting potentially with Giuliani, <laughs> of uh, calling up the press before you make an arrest um, in order to make a spectacle. And this was before he was doing anything from the garden to stores next to a sex shop. Yes. <laughs> but so like it is not a coincidence when there are five different news cameras, right, that are standing outside of a house when somebody gets arrested by the FBI. Yeah. We don't want the feds, we don't want law enforcement putting out a press release that they're going to arrest someone. Because there has been no adjudication of guilt. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of reputational harm or just embarrassment um, is a real form of punishment, or can be, um, and it can cause an otherwise innocent person um, to uh, cooperate with law enforcement in a way that they wouldn't be obligated to because they've done nothing wrong, because law enforcement can hold out a potential punishment um, when there's been no process done in order to establish any kind of guilt of anything. Yeah, it's just cruelty for the sake of cruelty. I don't think they intended it. No, no, but it's just, this is, a, this is a, a, just a way to highlight but an issue. Um, and again, this is one of those things where ultimately the biggest solution, the best solution is to just vote out prosecutors that um, do not live up to their ethical obligations. Uh, like, like it would be if you, if they actually knew that the crew was going to be out there and did this deliberately. Yes. So let's go to trial prep. First off, they don't give her any Miranda rights and the military does have a version of that. It's a little different, but I want article 31, <laughs> which is, actually a little broader in some important ways than civilian Miranda rights in the sense that um, uh, in order for there to be a legal requirement that a person is Mirandized, meaning they are read their Miranda rights, that would be you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney, like all those things you, you do see in, in movies and TV. <laughs> Fortunately, they do often Mirandize people. Um, but in order for that requirement to kick in, a person has to be in custody of law enforcement. So there has to have been the decision made to actually detain the person, not just stop them. Um, they put cuffs on her. She's, she's, that is, oh yes, there is no question that an arrest, the detention has been made. Yeah. 
Um, in Article 31, it doesn't actually have to be a detention. You could just be stopping someone to ask them questions. Um, and it also doesn't have to be a law enforcement branch of the military. It could be any officer. Um, so it's a little oh. bit broader in some respects. Uh, Tom Harper, if you're watching, you can correct me if I'm missing details. I am filling in for you, buddy, because I am not as much of an expert as you. I'm searching an officer. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, it is It is in some ways at least broader. Um, but they do, they do have a requirement for sure that is at least as strong as we have in the civilian world. So come out swinging there, because that just shows a blatant disregard for civil rights. So judges tend to get upset about that. So that's going to be one opening swing. Uh, the other part of this that I would, my trial team would include a computer forensic expert uh, and, uh, and a private eye, you know, someone to actually go out and, and do field work. Oh yeah, this is important to note that, you know, the even the best intending prosecutor with the greatest intentions, um, their job is not to find all the evidence that proves someone innocent. So even if they're doing a fulsome investigation, they may not pursue the same kind of avenues that an investigator would if they were instead setting out to prove someone's innocence. Yeah, and when you look at the PACLEDs, the fact that they had an act of espionage take place aboard the Cerritos, granted, badly, but we found out that that Maybe guy- Maybe not as badly as we thought. Yeah, possibly. I mean but their goal was to get a you know plant a bomb on the federation uh, i don't don't remember what was worth itself but they wanted to use a wmd of some kind mm -hmm. did they blow themselves up i think that's highly probable <laughs> given all given that they didn't know how the bombs worked in the previous episode with the yeah yeah it's a single use device so the fact that we have friedman who's been reporting on them who had a multiple firefights with them for her and did peace negotiations the fact that they go after her is highly questionable because mm -hmm. this there is the we want to prove the case that she is not guilty and that the state has failed to meet its burden of beyond a reasonable doubt because there's plenty of doubt it doesn't make sense even if you want to take the position of like oh it was clearly planned again the crazy conspiracy thinking that she's this criminal mastermind who, while trying to save a ship from destruction and a civilization at the same time, can also plan an attack on a second one with nobody else. Okay. Uh, and this highlights also another ethical obligation by prosecutors, which is not to try someone if they don't, for charges, if they don't believe that they can prove those charges beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, this is riddled with doubt. So the prosecutor, at least given what we know so we'll, far, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, and I, I definitely want to highlight um, for what we do find out perhaps in the next episode, um, which is, you know, all of the things that we're talking about, you know, if you're going to have mounted defense, and I assume that the crew of the Cerritos is going to essentially fill the role of your private eye of investigating. Um, but I was going to say, oh, that's what I was going to say. Speaking of Article 31, my current theory is okay. that this is, in fact, like you were saying, Section 31. Um, and my theory is that they decided to pin this on Captain Freeman, not only because she was the only Federation captain that we know of to have even visited the planet, but that she might actually have some ability to disprove 
the that it was a Klingon conspiracy or whatever the, the section 31 is saying. Um, so she might have an, an information, not, maybe not yet be aware of it, but might be able to prove section 31's involvement. So they're trying to take her out of the picture, make her un, uh, discredit her immediately. I think we can also write out the Klingons as trying to frame her because that sounds like a very Romulan thing mm -hmm. to, to do. And there's no honor in that with like, so we're going to take out a good captain. It's at least a rogue Klingon thing. Yeah, it can't yeah. be Klingon Empire. No, it doesn't make sense. So like, it's it's not in their character. Uh, so you, you get that, it's, and which highly dictates their national policy. Like they just don't do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And like, sure, they got cloaking devices, but they have to decloak the fire. And this is not something that they would do. It's very Romulan uh, and it's very section 31. It might be Cardassian too. Yeah, but at this point, Garrett should be the leader of the Cardassian. That's right. Uh, government after the Dominion War. So but it could be rogue Cardassian is my point. <laughs> there could be, yeah, it's like after a, a government's been decimated and the planet obliterated a couple times over, things would change. So there's that. Things would get messy. But uh, I'm looking forward to see what more, what facts they have, because this could be a trial episode that we actually get to see, which is uh, Maybe a multi-episode court-martial involving uh, an episode or two to try to find out uh, the truth of the matter and then eventually confront the wrongdoers in court. Yeah, because trials aren't quick. Like, you need discovery. So, and, and I'm not talking the show. I'm talking... Oh, you, oh, yes. You need discovery to find out what the hell is going on. And also, it is an artifact of entertainment that yeah. we get in trials. It is often that you get like the surprise evidence or the surprise witness. In general, that is not, that does not happen. <laughs> there are important concerns, kind of like what we were just talking about with the prosecutors have to turn over evidence yeah. with a reasonable amount of time. Unless there is a really good extenuating circumstance for why you couldn't get the evidence and, and show it to the opposing side before trial starts, you're definitely not gonna get your surprise. You may have a really compelling surprise witness or surprise evidence, but like I said, unless you can justify it to the judge why you could not produce it beforehand, you're probably not gonna get it in. Um, however, it is extremely entertaining. <laughs> so this is why it always happens in these things, including in, I believe, um, like the trial of data, there was, you know, unexpected evidence uh, and witnesses that got called, things like that. Yeah, because uh, yeah, that's compelling TV. But I would go on the warpath on the admissibility of the photos and the evidence, because that's one way to not have the probable cause, mm -hmm. to sound like, this is garbage. Yes. And that there's no there there. And, and do it Samuel T. Cogley style, too, once have some flair, uh, which, again, would be fun. Every Star Trek series has at least one trial. And, and they kind of already had one, although it wasn't a Federation trial. <laughs> no, a scary, scary alien trial. That was, which was still fun. It was a fun episode for us to cover. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So, like, they've met the bar. But, if but they, they need an actual Federation court martial trial because those are way more fun. Yes. And we know about the law. So, again, we would be more than happy to tag in. Mm -hmm. That said, if you need any helpful suggestions or consultations, yeah. Uh, that said, there's this season has just been so much fun, and uh, I cannot tell you, Josh, just how much fun it's been to watch this. This is so fantastic. Yeah, it's agreed, and we will be at our first event since March 2020 
because we went to San Diego Comic Fest before everything shut down. So we were literally one of the last at one of the last events of 2020. Although for me, I think the last time was Denver, Denver in 2019. So it's been like two years for me. I think it's been literally two. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so we are returning to Denver for Denver uh, fan, excuse me. Yeah. Denver fan, fan Expo, I think. Fan, fan Expo. They went through a name change. They were pop culture con, but then they became Fan Expo Special Edition mm -hmm. because it's over Halloween weekend and uh, we will have three panels. And so the first panel was on Saturday. It's on Lower Decks and at 2.30, Binari and I and uh, Molly Beth, who is a lawyer with the USPTO, so an hardcore Trek nerd herself. And that's going to be a rip roaring good time as we cover both seasons of Lower Decks and some uh, our favorite issues that we have. We also have some more on Saturday, uh, digging into WandaVision mm -hmm. and then Universal Monsters because, hey, it's Halloween. And that will include a special guest, the Colorado Attorney General. So yes, we're going to have a fantastic time. He is spending this weekend watching Universal Monster movies and I, I can't help but just highly admire that. <laughs> yes. uh, just, he's, he's such a nice man, great civil servant, everything that you want. And you know, it's just like, he's nice and smart. And but, is doing his homework. <laughs> Hardworking. Like he, I mean, when you look at his campaign, it's like, okay, you actually believe everything you said and you're doing a good job. So I just, I really admire that. And I look forward to getting to talk Universal Monsters with him. So, uh, so with that, everyone, Stay safe, stay healthy, stay geeky. And until then, look in person. It's re we're real. So <laughs> yes. take care, everyone. Good night.